Hey everyone, you're now part of the B2B Power Hour and I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett. I'm Morgan Smith. We help sales professionals power up their sales skills from first touch to revenue, one hour at a time. Join us for weekly live shows and interviews with industry experts breaking down what works and what doesn't in the remote sales era. Now, on to today's episode. This is a fun topic, and I cannot tell you how many messages I received about this one, because we've all been there. You go and sign up with a company, you get promised the world, and they're like, you know, you can make unlimited commission, like it's going to be, you know, you can sell to everyone. It's great. And then you start selling and realize very quickly in those conversations that nothing's been mapped out. They don't really have a track record of who they sell to or a process to do it. And so really, it's up to you to trailblaze. And unfortunately, I don't know about your guys' track record, but every company I've done that with hasn't paid me to do that. So not exactly the best situation to be in. (laughs) No. Well, and we hear this a lot, right? Like uh, selling a, a poorly positioned product or selling a poorly positioned company to some degree is always evident in the kind of messaging that you send out and the kind of responses you get. Like, I think one of the key indicators of a poorly positioned product is losing to no decision because there's no reason to change, right? It's not like you lost to a competitor. That can that may also be a symptom or a sign. But most of the time, struggling against a product that isn't positioned well, that doesn't have a reason to exist, that buyers don't understand the purpose of comes back to, well, the status quo is good enough. Why should I spend money to change? And we hear this all of the time, right? Like sellers, I just can't get these buyers to like return my calls. I just can't get them across the finish line. Every time, I, you know, 80% of my deals become closed lost to no decision or oh, that you know, the, there's too many people on the buying committee or all the other ways that people sort of avoid responsibility instead of saying, no, this isn't for us right now or no, it's too expensive. That's a different kind of objection. Or there's other sorts of objections or that show like, oh, this might be a position product, but it's not. So I want to ask you, yeah. and I want the audience to chime in too, is it your responsibility to save a company with a poorly positioned product. Oh gosh, that coming in hot today, Nick. <laughs> Is it our responsibility to save a company that's poorly positioned? Or should you leave? What would you do? Right off the top of your head, what, what do you think? My gut says that like 80% of companies are poorly positioned, so it would be kind of hard to find a, <laughs> a job consistently at a company that actually has their stuff together. But I don't know if that means it's your responsibility to actually fix it. Like, I don't know, Nick, that's a hard one. Hmm. I don't honestly think it's a yes or no answer. Hmm. So if you get hired by a manager that's worked at a larger company and they brought their large company rules to a startup, I would quit. And I'll tell you why, because they're going to go in. They won't believe in experimentation. They won't have any patience. They're going to hold you to a standard that you're not there yet. That The company isn't there yet. But if you have a, you're working with a founder that knows that they're in experimentation, that they're actually linking you into that goal and giving you guidance of what you're experimenting with and you have open communication, I would do that. But as long as there isn't a quota over my head so aggressively while we're experimenting, because it's not realistic. Don't get me wrong, like you will pay for yourself, but 
you can't track it week by week, month by month, quarter by quarter, like a lot of, it's just, not, they're not, it's a different stage of business. That's interesting about the experimentation side. I don't know if I'd ever really thought about that, but it's true when a product or a company is poorly positioned, and I did all this work as a brand strategist, you have to go out in market and test and see what works. It's like, is it fair to quota sellers, to even have quota for sellers who are testing like the incentives need to be in place. But if the reason that the sellers can't achieve quota is because they're experimenting and testing how the product needs to be positioned instead of some other reason, I don't know. That's actually a really interesting insight, Nick. I won't dive too much more into it. I'll go because you guys have quota. And the likelihood is you're not going to want to just leave, especially in this market. But I will just leave it at that. If you're in this situation, I would do a little research on leading and lagging indicators. And we'll talk a little bit about experimentation later in the show, but I would have that conversation with management just to manage that expectation that you need their help running experiments. And if you have more people, you should go and divide and conquer and move fast. But Mm -hmm. we'll get into that, how to do it individually, because I actually had a really shitty experience doing this in a very crowded field. Okay. Life and health insurance. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, I failed miserably before I got any, any amount of progress. Because everybody and their dog was doing it. Everybody was an expert. In quotes. And so what happens when you went out to go and talk to people, right? What are you actually selling? Hope and a dream? (laughs) And so when I was going out, when I, my first, like how they, how they treated me wasn't great. Like they took me to an industrial area and they just dropped me off and they said, they come pick me up in eight hours. That was my onboarding. So of course, not the greatest onboarding experience, but after three months, two months, three months of failure. And let me say like, I was 100% commissioned, so they didn't really care if I sank or swim. Mm. But what I realized is there's always something that stands out about a product. And so you hope that the company has a reason to exist and that it wasn't just a, a good idea from someone that didn't actually need or use the product themselves. But what I looked at is I started digging into the products that I had and I looked at which ones were unique to what I could, what I could offer And then I dove really deep and started reading into the contracting and comparing what you would call a triangulation. And I realized very quickly that one thing they did better than anyone else is people that worked in the trades were better covered and covered for more and covered longer. And I'm like, okay, well, tradespeople know that they're going to get, they might get hurt eventually because they're working hard. But this is the question that changed it for me. Who really cares that I don't need to sell? When it comes to that, who thinking about outside of just their work, what would make them really care? Any guesses? About life and health insurance? Yeah. What would make them magically like it just, it was an easy conversation that really got them thinking. Probably something to do with like injuries on the job, but okay. He's shaking his head. (laughs) So that's what I assumed, right? That's what everybody taught Mm -hmm. me. But what I realized is that when I was going through and talking to people, it was people with families that listen more often than not. And this is the one that changed everything. It was the people with families that had an active lifestyle. And this is how the conversation changed. So this took a lot of practice, but I'd walk up to someone, I'd go like, I'd go in a residential area, I'd see their trucks, and a lot of them use their own vehicles. And I'd walk in, I was like, hey, I just saw the truck out in the front with the snowboard stickers. Is that yours? Mm. Yeah. You know, being in this job, one thing I found frustrating is that you find yourself holding back while you're having fun because you can't afford to get hurt. Yeah, you know, I we were just out and then they would join in that conversation because I would continue that narrative because and a lot of the time they never really thought about it. So they'd pause and then they would they would actually tell me about a story. I didn't have to sell. That's awesome. 
I just had to find people that that was that narrative and maybe they never thought about it or realized that they were holding back. But as soon as I put it in front of them, like Challenger customer says, that commercial insight, Mm -hmm. all I had to do is drive around areas and find people with look like they had active lifestyles because a lot of them had stickers on their truck. And from there, I built a big enough business that I could work off of referrals. But you got to think if you're selling a product that has a lot of competition and please, please don't throw in the comments that you're unique because they're getting the job done some way. So you're really not. And so we got to think compared to everyone else, where's that white space where your competitors are failing, that they're just missing the mark and your customers are wanting more or your prospects are wanting more? Where is that? You know, I was, I was doing some reading and get ready for this show. Did you know that Slack was originally a video game company? I did not know that. <laughs> and so they were building video games. The founders were in the process of developing a role-playing video game. And Slack was something they had quickly hacked together as an internal communication tool for the team. The team was soon realized that the market had plenty of role-playing games, but there was nothing out there quite like Slack. Like, how do you do that for an established product? Like, that's a nice story and I like it, but like... For a a company that already has a product built and some seller has to go out there and do it and go sell it, they're not going to be inventing some new product line to go to market. Like, what are you paying attention to in market to find those niches or to find those areas like in your insurance business that get people to pay attention? So one of the ones that I found recently that is one of my favorites, and any new customer we take on, this is what I do. I go to G2 in tech. If they're, if they're a tech business, I go to G2. And I find their top three, the most relevant competitors. There could be more, but I find the ones that they would lose business to. And what I do is mm-hmm. I actually look at their two-star, three-star, and four-star reviews to figure out where they're missing the mark. And four-star actually is really interesting because they'll say everything was good, but... And I, what I find is you can spend about 30 minutes going through reviews. And if you just write down the pros and cons you'll see a pattern. And so sometimes it's not about the product itself because obviously the product came from somewhere. You know, competition says that when somebody sees something working like Netflix and now Disney Plus, people will want to go and take advantage of it too because there's money to be made. So there's money to be made. But one thing that I found interesting from buying, they were doing, Challenger did a bunch of studies is they found that 54.1% of the time, it was a sales process that stood out and made people buy. So if we think of this buying experience, where are they missing the mark? And what is good enough to stand out? Is it timing? Is it quality? What is it? Is it because you have a special feature that no one else does that that's the main reason they go to use it? It's those little things that you have to dive into and figure out what stands out. And then you got to map out to lifestyle, preference, something that would make that a priority in their life. And I'll be honest with you, this is hard. And if you can get the team to do it with you, it's a lot faster. But if you were selling like a competition to Microsoft Office, (laughs) you just got to figure out why people hate Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And you'll find an abundance of answers. And then you got to just go and dissect to figure out, well, what matters that you can go and capitalize on? Mm. Maybe they don't want to pay a subscription fee and you sell it annually. They actually own it. Or it's a one-time fee. Maybe you actually have service that responds. You know, maybe you guys don't change the buttons every few months so that people know where to go and they don't want to go and spend time relearning. Remember when they did that with like, oh my gosh, you get word and you, but it's those little things. People don't like change. Mm -hmm. And so you could figure out how they're doing the job right now. And maybe you're closer to how they would naturally do it. But you have to dissect this and look at those benefits and look at how they're getting the job done right now and better match it. 
And I find that G2 is just an easy way because people are going to give an honest opinion of what they hate or what they love. And I find that somewhere in the middle, the people are more honest. And the one star or the five star, they don't give good, it's not genuine feedback. Right. That's interesting because like I've always, you know, as a brand strategist, I always tackled this at a company level. So I was always thinking about it like as I think about strategy, like this is top level strategy from the top level positionings, strategy flows messaging. And then from the messaging architecture flows marketing materials, flows sales decks, flows all of the other like go to market tactics. What I like you're pointing out about, and I think we've thought about this and experimented with it enough, but I like the way you're articulating, which is like, how about let's iteratively test our competitive advantage in market by like finding those wedges we can sort of hammer home. Like, okay, I want to sell into this company. I know my product does X. This company is struggling with this problem related to X. Maybe let's open up a conversation and see if that's an area that people are willing to engage in or modify behavior at at that company and then sort of continue to test. So like, but what if you get a couple of bites and then you stop getting bites? Does that mean you're just lucky or is there some sort of like broader (laughs) problem at hand? One of the things that saved me in insurance is I figured out how to hyper target. So I'd get really, really small segment and I would just go all out. But what I would do is I'd rapidly experiment and I'd write them out what I was going to experiment with. But then I had a a way of coaching myself. And really all it was is diagnosing where I was failing. So I'd walk up. One of the ones I would say is, hey, Morgan, you know, I was just around the area and I just wanted to pop and introduce myself. My name's Nick. That did not work. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I kept trying new openers until I got one that allowed me to continue the conversation. Once I got an opener that worked, then I would work through my like disqualification and like what I said next, right? So it's like, okay, what's my introduction? What's my starting conversation? What's that kind of that navigating that gray area, which we now call vampire sales, navigating the gray area, and then getting to next steps. Hey, you know, I was just popping in. Sounds like it might make sense for us to go and meet and dive into this further. And then who should be part of this conversation? Who would feel, you know, left out if they weren't part of it? Oh, yeah, I should probably bring my wife in. How about Thursday or Friday after dinner, six, seven, eight, I pop over and uh, I'll, I'll go and put something together for you. Yeah, could you come over Friday at 7 p.m.? And that's all I would do. And I would just keep running those tests, but I would only test one section at a time. And so if I set a limit and I said, I'm only going to talk to 20 people failing until I'm going to switch, that was my, I don't know, sanity mechanism to make sure that I didn't want (laughs) to die while I was out in the field. (laughs) And all I would do is just journal everything I was doing. Mm. And oh God, you guys have heard me say this before. The journal was the most eye-opening and disappointing thing I ever did at the same time because there's no point in lying to yourself. And as soon as you get really honest on the page, you make progress fast because it's black and white. And that's what I kept doing was just diagnosing. And then I'm like, okay, what am I going to try next week? Should I go and keep the same target market? Should I stay in the same geography? What or like on LinkedIn now, what filter am I going to change? So if you have a set account list, huh, maybe I'll try a different function oh shit, maybe, maybe it's a different seniority in that function. Maybe I'll start lower. Maybe I should start higher or maybe I should do more research and bring that before I start doing my outreach. What if I could only talk to five people? And what you do is you're actually giving yourself a sandbox to play in. It seems so counterintuitive, but the more rules I gave myself for testing, 
And the more limitations I, I put in place, the faster and easier I could test. And I think this is the hardest part because like, I honestly think my my greatest nightmares in sales didn't come from misperformance. They came from when I was, you know, somebody wanted to pitch me on selling for them. They'd be like, Nick, you're going to love this. This product, anyone can buy it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah, the TikTok sound. Uh, that's great. But I imagine you get that in marketing too. Like when, if somebody says, hey, you know, like who's this for? Who should we be targeting? What should we be doing? Yeah. How do you go and use like talking about what people expect. Mm-hmm. So what 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 does professional look like? What does that type of messaging look like? What sh- what should I compare it against? Well, if I don't know who I'm talking to, what you know, what industry vertical, at what function, at what seniority, you're just you're just shooting everywhere. Yeah, but, I mean, and obviously the way that a lot of marketers have gotten around that is is persona creation, and there's obvious limitations to that because personas are personas; they're not actual real people. And too often they're they're based on some sort of mythical idea of what a customer is instead of actually doing customer interviews and uh, talking with people who bought and like unpacking that. I've been in too many rooms where the persona is a fabrication of somebody's imagination of who would buy and not actually. I still love your try hard Tammy. That was still my oh. favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like they, they get all these silly names, right? Try hard Tammies. And the thing that it doesn't escape me as you're talking about this is it's like there's so little utility for personas when you're out in the field testing stuff. And, and you had asked like what this was like in marketing and you know, a lot of my work at a brand level wasn't thinking about the channel distribution and thinking about who are the specific job titles and all the rest of it. It could have helped, but mostly I was thinking about what are their beliefs about the industry? And these are strategic questions that I hear you sort of working up to or iteratively testing, which is like, what do our prospects believe about the industry or believe about themselves? Chris your personas. <laughs> Yes, they are. Chris has said they're they're who the company wishes they were selling to, not people who. No, actually Chris, exist. those are account lists. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is the logo we wish we would had on our on our banner. That's the thing. Like when it comes for, at a brand level, I'm always thinking. I'm not thinking about try hard Tammies or I don't know, choose your favorite Susans or Jims or whatever. Like what? <laughs> I don't know. They, they come up with all sorts of dumb stuff. I'm thinking about, okay, somebody wants to buy. Like, that's a great place to start. Why do they want to buy? What is it about the situation they're in or the status quo that has prompted them to buy? So I don't like doing this from a sales standpoint. Yeah. I like doing this from a, like a leadership strategy mm. standpoint. Mm-hmm. But I don't think this works from a sales standpoint because you have to reverse engineer why the product should exist. And right, hope yeah. and pray that you're you come to a response, and the answer is it it shouldn't. It should. <laughs> well, and I I think that's a sad thing. Like there are a lot of companies that probably shouldn't exist that just have nice to have products. I mean, that's a spicy take for today, but it's true. I there's a lot of products that are cool and fun and don't have any reason for somebody to buy. And my favorite is you talk to the leaders and like, yeah, it's unique. It's different. And then you read their bios or you read the about sections or you look at their, you know, their landing page on their website. And it's like, did you guys just copy and paste and change a few (laughs) words? Or like, how did did this happen? Well, 
The only thing I was thinking about, and maybe this is a little pushback to what you just said of like, it doesn't work from a sales perspective. I think the area it does work when you start with like, why does somebody buy is when you do a win-loss analysis. And sure, a win-loss should probably be done at a company or a team level. But if an individual goes in and looks at the last five accounts that were closed one and the five accounts that were closed lost, I think there's a lot of insight that an individual seller can find about why did a buyer buy? What were the circumstances in which they they bought? And using that insight, not necessarily at a strategic level, at the articulating broad-based positioning, but to what you were talking about, changing maybe who the job titles they're going after or the specific messaging they're using to opening up conversations. I do think that that could be useful if the CRM has that kind of data. <laughs> but even if it doesn't, even if you've never won an account and you're like blank canvas, mm-hmm. where are other sellers losing to? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Where did the process end? Where did it abruptly stop? Or who's getting further than you? So how did they win in the first initial stage? This is all you got to do. The problem is your manager is going to point to why you didn't sell shit. And I'm going to go and tell you, who cares? You're not there yet. Right. Focus on winning the stages. So if you broke up your buying process into 10 stages, you've never, the company's never sold anything. They can't talk shit. <laughs> they have nothing to stand on. Be like, cool, show me what you've done. So uh-huh. let's be productive and let's break it into 10 steps, five steps, whatever is comfortable for you, four steps. And let's just start tracking how far we're getting. And so one of the things I would really focus on was just pre-funnel, pre-pipeline. <laughs> so <laughs> how could I break that up into just those four steps, like my introduction, my initial conversation, navigating that gray area, like on LinkedIn, that might be going from comments to DMs or DMs to a meeting. Mm-hmm. And then the ask, which gets to the meeting. Mm-hmm. Like I would just break it down into that and then use everything in your power to go and figure out who else is getting further than you and do what every great salesperson does. Copy it and throw it into your list and run with it because don't don't recreate <laughs> like the Like every great artist. Right? Yeah, every great artist steals. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, just look like if everybody's losing, just figure out who's losing further ahead of, than you. <laughs> or fig- like try to break it into the stages and figure out, you know, the best thing... We had one uh, company that we worked with and I got the sellers to start talking about this when I was doing a turnaround job. And I found out that people were better at different stages. And so we actually did, we got the best to teach the rest. So every Monday we would pick a different piece that people were falling apart and they would actually teach each other how they were winning. And we, it was like magic because everybody, they're like, oh shit, I never even thought of that. Or, you know, because sales is pattern recognition. Like, oh, so if you're seeing that, I should do this. And so you got to give yourself barriers, you got to give yourself limits. And it honestly, it feels good when you're tracking like, man, I nailed 10 intros today and made it to the second part of the conversation. And then it took me seven tries. But then I ended up getting past the second conversation to have a winning formula. That's something whether you're an SDR, AE, I don't care, something to be proud about, because that's hard work. And that is meaningful progress. I also think that's why like tools like a gong or whatever that allow us to review and understand and listen in on successful conversations versus failed conversations, if we want to bifurcate it like that, help us recognize, oh, this is what they actually care about. Oh, this is what they're thinking about. And like, you don't need gong to accomplish that, right? But it's that just kind of came to mind as you were as you were talking. Conversational intelligence is amazing. Like we never had that before. 
But even if you just, mm-hmm. if you break up the sales process or the buyer's journey into stages, the real piece is just figuring out where it's falling apart so you know what to build. And trust me, like I've been there. I've been working for startups. So I look around, every freaking thing around me is on fire. And I'm like, well, what the hell do I target? Well, if I have no cash, so they can't even pay me, cash is king. So I'm going to focus on the money. And then after we get the money, then we'll focus on the next biggest fire, right? But this is why I like this process of very strategic experimentation. And I think the one thing that really, really, really like defined this for me is I sat down every Friday and I would spend two hours looking at the entire week, every approach I made. And I would just look at where, where I failed, where I won. And I would write my experiments for next week with a goal. And that was it. It's just one goal, one primary goal. Primary comes from the word single, single focus, primary, one. And then it just changed everything because it allowed me to experiment faster. Also, if I was experimenting and I just missed the mark, you get it after doing these, you know, these closed loops enough times, you start to feel it. But the thing I have to go and warn against is one thing I failed is when I got excited about this, I stopped doing the Friday event. So what happened? I wasn't going anywhere meaningfully. But the cool part is, and I don't know, I can't promise this will work for your manager. I had a manager that was a total dickhead. And whenever he would ask me, like, why aren't you selling something? I would show him my end of week reports that I was doing for myself. And he knew that they weren't selling anything and that I was the blazing the trail. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. Well, maybe we can change what marketing's doing on this end because they're focusing on construction. But, you know, construction isn't really all the, that focus on what we're doing. Maybe we'll change to energy services and particularly downhole tools. Yeah, that's where I'm getting traction. So, yeah, that would be Might nice. Well. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be really nice, huh? <laughs> it's that communication and it's you have to break it down, whether you're full cycle or not, like whether you're an SDR or you're full cycle AE or you're an AE just focusing on mid funnel late. You have to break down the steps to figure out where you're winning and then change the way you're interacting with customers. And that challenger says that's over 50% of the process that people win by. It's not your brand. The brand might open the conversation and earn trust later in the process. But this is what will make you a better seller because you'll build up that pattern recognition where you can consistently kick ass and does not matter about what product or service you're selling because you're investing in you. You know what's interesting? I don't mean to cut you off there. I was actually done, so oh, okay. I'm glad that you <laughs> yeah, where's that soapbox? It's now my turn. <laughs> Ooh. What I always found in my work, and this doesn't get talked about a lot amongst salespeople mostly because there's no visibility into this process. The hardest part at a strategy level into marketing at a high level is translating positioning into messaging. It's the hardest thing. And the reason is, all of messaging is just wordsmithing. Because nobody talks to real customers. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, oh, you uh, mean... <laughs> I mean, there's that problem too, Nick. Oh, okay. Just... <laughs> just to be clear, yeah. But truly, the issue that every company I worked with ran into was we know what makes us different. We know what our, our, our process, our IP, our product, whatever else. We know what makes us different. We know what makes us better to some degree. But... We don't know how to tell people about that. We don't know what the headline should be on a website. We don't know what the outbound emails should be for the sellers. We don't know how our ads should sound, like why somebody would stop the scroll. The hardest work of any any strategy is translating the positioning into the messaging because the you can get really clear. I remember working with a company 
who got very clear on their triangulation, which we brought up a couple of times. So their, their unique value, their competitive advantage, and their powerful story as a company. And then their marketing manager felt like she was hitting a head against a brick wall trying to translate that triangulation into useful messaging. And I think part of the reason is what you were joking about previously. Most marketers, most leaders are not talking with customers every day. Okay, I have to ask a question. Okay. You guys might need to plug your ears if you're in marketing. Oh, no. no, just kidding. <laughs> so what is a better investment for a startup then? Sales or marketing? And who should lead the charge initially? Woo, that's a spicy one. <laughs> Damn, Nick, coming in hot. You know, my honest answer is some sort of sales-led motion. I imagine the person that would get hired is called growth more than like SDR or AE or any sort of traditional sales. But the the function of that role, ignoring job titles, is to go out and try and sell something. like Experiment. An experiment. Because, and I know what you're hinting at here, which is that the the quickest way to learn whether your product works or not is to go talk with 20 customers and see what they say. Like this is the classic zero to one roadmap, the classic business model canvas, whatever else, is to go out and talk to 20 people and see what they say. And a lot of the times startups or even companies rolling out new products, like think of, now this is, a, I'll turn Uh-oh. this back around to you in a second, Uh-oh. but it's it's such an easy way to get in front of customers. I don't want to cut off your answer, but let's turn this around and say, because I imagine you'll probably say the same thing as I did. So what about a company that's rolling out a new line of business and they have a product marketing team? They're an established team, but it's a new product. Should they start with sales and marketing? Sales, always. But it depends on how they design the product. Oh, it depends. I didn't know you were a marketer, Nick. I'm learning. Or I'm learning. (laughs) I'm learning, learning. (laughs) Chris will appreciate that. Uh-huh. But it really depends because like if, say, AWS, when they went and launched the AWS, they realized that all the learnings they had about building an e-commerce giant mm. and all the tech, like their their skills in-house was not commonplace. So they could go and take that in market because going one to many made sense. Mm-hmm. This is the difference that I, I wish people knew about sales and marketing. The beauty of sales is it's one to one. And especially, it's a little bit harder now in the world where we don't get to go like face to face, but you get to get the emotion, you get the body language, you really get to do research in real time. And then once you find a winning formula, marketing needs to know so that they can go one to many. But the first time in my entire career is when social media taught me I didn't have to wait for marketing. I could go and self-generate pipeline by acting like a marketer, by taking what was working, by doing my experiments, like what we did with the LinkedIn sales guide. All that was, was us doing the same process of like, let's try this. Oh my God, never do that again. Let's try this. Ooh, uh, that one kind of worked. Oh, what could be maybe be better, right? It was just that very diligent, okay, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. And then once you find that winning formula, automate it, go bigger. And then you'll find that even with that, which hopefully marketing does, is you experiment with that at a certain level too so that you can figure out what is the best piece for education and what is the best piece for starting conversations. And they're not the same content. See, and that's really interesting because I think one of the advantages that like modern product marketing teams 
have in larger companies. I think smaller companies still struggle with this, but but larger mid market to enterprise is that when it's done correctly, and and that's it is fairly commonplace to do it correctly now. The product marketing team is shortcutting a lot of that research on behalf of sales, right? Because usually they're integrating UX research for the product and actually like working and talking with product uh, with uh, users and then building marketing messaging that's related to that product that's being built. So it's a little more customer-centered. It's by no means a holy grail, but uh, it seems to shortcut at least the the initial mountain that sales usually has to climb in order to get those first conversations started. Did I tell you about my happy accident when I started brokering and had more pro- had more product to sell and what happened after my first year? I don't think so. Or maybe six, might even been six months. So when I was in a career agency, I was honestly, I from all that experimentation, I had a process that worked and I had it dialed in. God, it was fun. <laughs> and then I went to, I started my own business and I was brokering and I had access to way too much, way too much. And so I went and did a win-loss analysis after, I can't remember, six months or a year. And it something blew my freaking mind. I would have never guessed this. I never noticed it. Every single deal I won, every single deal I won came from one product first. Wow. One. Wow. And so, of course, naturally, what would you do if you figured that out, Morgan? <laughs> you go sell more of that product first. Yeah. <laughs> and figure out why. Why mm-hmm. were they buying that? And it was super interesting because I figured out that disability was the place to go because it was an they, it was an immediate need. They could see it. And then I could go back once I had established more trust and credibility and got to know them better. Then we would build other lines of business in because there was that credibility piece. And I had enough information to do a diagnosis and a prescription, right? But it blew my mind. So I was spending all this time pitching all these different products and services to find out that it was a waste of time. Did I scare you that much? You had to go and run away? Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Short technical issue. I was running away. <laughs> oh. No, I think <laughs> that's uh, amazing because one of the things that always stands out to me in the, the companies that we've been working with, Nick, is that there's not a lot of critical analysis about <laughs> what products are actually selling and why. And that why is the crucial question. And, and I think in some ways it's implicit. But I would like to ask you, like, because it's sort of the, it's like a, um, oh, what is it? It's like survey questions. You know, survey question formulation is an art because if you ask things in a certain way, you prompt a certain response. So I imagine that going to a customer and asking them, well, why did you buy this product? Isn't actually going to gain the response that you're seeking. What do you like to look for or ask about why customers actually bought? This one I have, if you have Gong, this is your kryptonite. Mm. I didn't have Gong, but I had my sales journals. And part of what I did in my sales journals is I documented the key moments. And so what I did is I would go back and because I had all of it in, in my database, as I looked at those customers and I just looked at what the buyer's journey looked like. And that's all I did. Hmm. But it was because I set myself up for success. Hmm. And because I was documenting like those four pieces getting into pipeline and then pipeline, as long as you have good deal stages, then it works. Right. But yeah, it's like as long as you break that down, whether you use medic with like combined with like why change, why you, why now, 
like the psychology behind change management, if you just break it down into steps, those steps will tell you where you're where you're failing. And you might find out later those aren't the best, but that's all I did is I went back to that and I looked at those one-on-one conversations and I was able to dissect that and then just start a little bit smarter, a little bit better. I like that. It's a lot of like personal reflection and, and knowledge building as a way to assimilate that. So I have to put a number to this because this, okay. I don't know if I shared this before. So when I was prospecting, I would go out in the field for six to eight hours a day, Monday through Friday out to the job sites, just walking around job sites, talking to people. Once I figured out where, like dialed that in so it was hyper-targeted, I spent two hours a week. That was the difference because my hit rate was so high. So like in sales, they always talk about, if you look at like predictable revenue or any of that, where they reverse your numbers, they always taught us 125, one. 100 people you talk to of that, you know, 20 will be interested, five will meet with you and one will buy. Well, I would talk to 20 people, 18 were interested, and 12 would buy. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's only because I spent the time to dial in those numbers. And then I figured out that level of consistency that would service my quota, my goal, not the company's. But I will tell you, there were some miserable journeys to get to that level. I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> but but if, if I wouldn't have documented that for myself... Mm-hmm. and figured out what I needed to learn and where I needed to experiment, I would have never got there. And so I think that's really the key of how to sell a poorly positioned product is breaking it down to figure out where the product is failing, where it's falling apart. And you hope it's not after like CS isn't telling you, but, but even right. if you are selling and go talk to CS and ask them who sees the value of the product the fastest. Like if they're doing, if you have onboarding, Who gets it the fastest? Who starts using it? Who are the power users? And then go back to that. But it's always going back to the best information you have available. If you can do a win-loss analysis, hell yeah. If you've never won a deal, like a company is so brand new, then you're basically just trailblazing, but you got to break it down into those steps. You know where you're winning so that you can repeat it. And that's really all it is. And it sucks, but you have to celebrate those little wins And you need to loop in the management and marketing so that once you get to a certain level of success, that they can take it one to many and make your life easier. I hope. But the the management transfer is actually really interesting because part of what I continue to always think about companies rolling out a new product is positioning is temporary. And, And this is so true in SaaS especially, but even in a broader level, like the hope is the unique value of the company rarely changes. Like your IP, your process, your product is a standalone, uncopyable sort of asset. But most of the time in SaaS, it's not because it's it's like email software. Well, there's 20 different email software providers. Like, come on, who should I choose? Well, then that comes to the competitive advantage, the powerful story, the sort of, you know, convert kit works with creators, active campaign does experience management, all those sorts of like positions. But all of that's temporary right? And what I love about what you've been outlining today, and I wanted to be explicit about this because I also have felt this way, which is no matter how good your first experiments are, and you can start winning for three to six months, it's not a guarantee that you'll keep on winning for two years. And we just got to stay on our feet doing the hard work, right? Adapting. Like I remember when I first started building websites, my my first little gig into marketing, this is 
2010, WordPress was not what it was today. Like, like people would still use Joomla, a CMS, and like Drupal was a thing. And so WordPress was a competitive advantage because they had some cool features and all the rest of it. And so after I had done some custom, what I would call hard-coded sites, you know, HTML, CSS, all the rest of it, and then work your way out to WordPress, that didn't last. 2012, 2013 rolled around. Now everybody was doing WordPress. So now suddenly when I had to start selling website gigs, it wasn't about the tech anymore. It was to a similar audience, but now it, it was something different. They needed different things. Buyers change. That's the most important lesson. Yep. Buyers preferences, preferences change. change. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <Jinx>, you know. <laughs> and that's that's not a uh long-term thing. It happens quickly. That was the last thought. Couldn't agree more. And Chris, thank you. This is amazing. Start with people who see the biggest wins fastest and message out from there. I love that you made this comment because one other thing I noticed when I moved into tech, even when I was in M&A advisory, when it came to change management, the ones that saw it the fastest, on average, when I would go back and talk to them and especially the power users, one of the things they would tell me is it was 10 times better than anything they were doing before. Wow. And it going back because of my notes, that was one of the most consistent things I kept hearing is it was 10 times better. And what I found when I was losing to status quo, it was cool. It made sense, but I don't feel like changing what I'm doing because it's not worth it. <laughs> and so the worth it, what's worth it, what's worth going through the bullshit of change was 10 times. I don't, if you guys can quantify that, I haven't found a way to quantify that perfectly, but 10 times was the feedback I got. So I would actually start going and trying to go and look at the, not ROI, but the process and how it changed with my product or service. And so I'd look at input time versus result. And that was the easiest that's like, time, right? Time or frustration. Right, yeah. And full circle to what we were start, what I had started with, which is like knowing that a poorly positioned company most often loses to, to no decision or loses to the status quo is finding those areas where you're not. And finding those people that can clearly articulate or have said or indicated something that shows an opening. And this is so funny. Chris just <laughs> dropped a comment. This add? explains why B2B marketing <laughs> always feels six months behind the times. It's true. Because, Chris, I appreciate you. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but that's also because when you think about the feedback loop and the creative process at most companies for B2B marketing, it's we learn something about our customers. Then we send it to a creative team. Sometimes it's in-house. Oftentimes it's an agency. Then the agency has to create ideas, headlines, mock-ups, creatives. Then that creative has to get approved, says, yes, it's quote-unquote on-brand. Then it goes to the individual campaign manager who then can roll it out as an ad or organic content or all the rest of it. And that coordination, if you think about all of those steps, takes a long time. And most of the time, the shitty thing is we learn something new about our customers is rarely ever shared with marketing in the first place. So of course they're going to be behind, right? Everybody's like, what? We know that? And like, and this is the classic thing, Nick, you and I laugh about all the time is, uh, you know, the sellers already know what the customers need. The account executive understands what the prospect <laughs> marketing's asking. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we stopped doing that like last year because we figured out it was going nowhere. We just what? spent $100,000 on ads for that. Oh, oh, I, I would stop that. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> Somebody, and that that is why, in my view. I was talking to maybe I won't say names just to be fair because the story, but going back to sales being pattern recognition, all go to market is pattern recognition. It's a knowledge game. One thing that we we learn there's evil learning environments, and I would say the reason why more often than not sales fails is because it's evil. It's an evil learning environment, meaning that it has an open loop. There is no ability to learn because you're not going full circle, figuring, reflecting on what happened, starting smarter, trying again. That's where I failed. I never closed the loop. As soon as I closed the loop, it was an investment into myself. Who gives a shit about the company? It's an investment in myself, right? But mm-hmm. this friend had used another story and she's like, well, my, my husband's a firefighter. And one of the things that I really feel bad for him, he really struggles with is that he never sees... You never sees the cause of like what happens after. So they cut somebody out of a car. They don't know if they live or die. They don't know if the CPR they did was useful. They don't know if the calls they made were worthwhile. Nobody ever gives them feedback on what happened. This is why sales haunts us. This is a perfect example. It's a little bit more extreme, but I wanted to use it because it was so perfect at framing this is that the reason why we get we stay up at night is because we're focusing on selling shit and we don't know where it's falling apart. The moment we close this loop and own it is the moment we start investing in ourselves. And all we can do is in our is to go and try to do one to many through content, through comments, or share it with sale, like share it with marketing and management. If they choose not to, who cares? I'll just say I'm proud of you because you've invested in yourself and you are now not only more hireable, but you are becoming a true sales professional. And I, that to me is the greatest badge of honor. Well, I don't think I have anything else to say for today. <laughs> Thanks everyone for coming. Nick, unless if you had a final soapbox you wanted to launch into. Not really. I, all I can say is less is more when it comes to sales. Close your loop. And one thing that I don't know why has always stuck in the back of my brain when we got into tech, Uber didn't create the taxi, but they kicked its ass. For now. Yeah. (laughs) But just something to think about. Mm -hmm. There's someone that came before you that opened the door and there is an opportunity to win. It's just, are you willing to do the work or is the work worth doing? And once you can answer that question, you got it. Awesome. So what's uh, anything you want to announce getting into the tail end of this? No, I don't think so. Uh, well, this is our last uh, show of the year. So happy 2022, everybody. I hope you all have a lovely, restful, fun holiday season, celebrating whatever holidays you celebrate and coming into the new year. This has been quite the year. And I got to say, I'll just say this. We've got some fun stuff coming for you in the new year. Yes. So keep your eyes peeled. And uh Thanks, everyone, as always, for joining these fun little conversations on a Friday morning. And as always, it's 2022, weeks away from 2023. It's time to celebrate all the good stuff you've done this year. You've worked so hard. You've invested in yourself. You've gone through the grind and the hustle and everything else. Don't forget to reward yourself. You deserve it and recharge those batteries. Next year is the year that you can come back recharged and win. And as always, if you need help, ask. We understand the struggle you go through, the loneliness, feeling like the world is on your shoulders because nobody's there to support you. And if you're there, don't need to buy anything. All you got to do is shoot a DM or an email mm-hmm. and we'd be happy to support you. Thank you so much for your trust and your ears. We really appreciate you. If you know anybody that would appreciate this, please send them to b2bpowerhour.com. Recommend an episode or two. Yeah. Thanks, guys. 
Happy Friday. Happy holidays. And Merry Christmas. Bye. Did you love today's episode? Subscribe now to have our three weekly episodes waiting for you. And if you really like our content, please leave a five-star review. But if you're not ready to give us a review, check out another episode and follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to win you over. See you next time. See you next time.